0: Good morning. I'm Paul Perot. No, not Carmen on Mornings with Carmen here on Faith Radio for this Monday. Hey, thank you for joining me. Carmen's still traveling. She was at a speaking engagement this weekend out in California and this morning still making her way back home. And she'll be back with us tomorrow here on Mornings with Carmen. Again, I'm Paul Pro. I'm usually the guy behind the board making all the music and all the other stuff happen. Ryan Mitchell is doing that for me today, so thanks a lot, Ryan, for getting up so early in the morning. Uh, uh, You still haven't had any coffee. That's the thing, man.
2: I may have to at some point, but I'm doing all right for now. We'll see how long that can stay, though.
0: Aren't you a coffee drinker? I'm not. Get used to it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, anyway, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, Karma likes to do it many times as she starts off the show, Where in the Word Are You? And as for me, thanks to, well, thanks to Charles Spurgeon, I'm in Isaiah chapter 40 today. Uh, that's where he was last night. In if you've ever done the morning and evening, the the devotional book he has out, it's I have the updated version that uh, Alistair Begg from Truth for Life did updating the English cuz you know 19 or rather 1800s English we just don't talk that way anymore but anyway as he was going through last night he was focusing on Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11 now Isaiah 40 and beyond. It's an interesting section of Scripture. You know, a few weeks ago, we did the uh, reading of the book of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6. And the book of Daniel can be divided into two sections, 1 through 6 and then the 7 onward. 1 through 6 is history. 7 and onward, that is all... 7 through 12, that's all prophecy. Well, are primarily prophecy. Well, Isaiah has a similar split. The first 39 chapters. It is God wrestling with his people, Israel, who are so stubborn, and they just keep getting themselves in trouble. And there's some beautiful promises, you know, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We talk about that at Christmas. Or, um, you know, a virgin shall conceive. Again, another Christmas passage there. There's some beautiful hopeful passages, hopeful prophecies, but by and large, it is God wrestling with his people a lot. And then something happens, and starting in chapter 40 and through the end of Isaiah, where there's just a lot of pictures, beautiful pictures in many cases, of what God hopes for and is longing for. Some people call it like the second gospel, actually the whole book of Isaiah, but especially that section, because you have these beautiful passages, for example, the servant songs, and if you ever want to spend time just seeing some beautiful predictions of Jesus... Look at Isaiah chapter four, twenty, or rather forty-two, forty-nine, fifty, and then the section that bridges from the end of fifty-one into, or fifty-two, that is into fifty-three. I mean, just some beautiful passages, descriptions of Jesus and his suffering, his servanthood, his his what he does for us. Chapter forty again. That that's one of those that. Um, now, that's one of those that just, again, it, it sets the tone for what's to come. Maybe you, you, you probably know the first few verses. If only through music from Handel's Messiah, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, or comfort, oh comfort my people, uh, in a newer translation. Um, moving forward, starting at verse 9-ish, I'd say, yeah, it's partway through verse 9, Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He continues on verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked off the marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Now, I skipped a key verse in what I just read there. Actually, I skipped a few, but the key verse is the one that Spurgeon landed on last night in his evening devotion. And in the midst of this, because I, I was reading that section, what I read, because it is so powerful. You see God in majesty, and he's coming to to take care of the nations that have been oppressing his people. And yet in the middle of this, he that is God tends his flock, verse 11, like a like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And that is where Spurgeon went. And here's what he wrote last night in his devotional. Our good shepherd has His flock in his flock a, ver- a variety of experiences. Some are strong in the Lord and others are weak in the faith. But he is impartial in his care for all his sheep. And the weakest lamb is as dear to him as the strongest in the flock. Lambs are prone to lag behind and to wander and are apt to grow weary. But from all the danger of these infirmities, the shepherd protects them with his arm of power. He finds newborn souls like young lambs ready to perish, and he nourishes them until life becomes vigorous. He finds weak minds ready to faint and die. He consoles them and renews their strength. All the little ones he gathers, for it is not the will of our Heavenly Father that one of them should perish. What a quick eye he must have to see them all. What a tender heart to care for them all. What a far-reaching and powerful arm to gather them all. In his lifetime on earth, he was a great gatherer of the weaker sort. And now that he dwells in heaven, his loving heart extends to the meek and contrite, the timid and the feeble, the fearful and the faint here below. How gently he gathers me to himself. It's interesting how all of a sudden Spurgeon kind of personalizes it. Gathers me to himself, to his truth, to his blood, to his love, to his church. With what effectual grace did he compel me to come to himself? Since my conversion, he has frequently restored me from my wanderings and once again gathered me within the circle of his everlasting arms. The best of all is that he does it all himself. He does not delegate the task of love, but condescends himself to rescue and preserve his most unworthy servant. How will I love or serve him enough? How will I make his name great to the ends of the earth? but what can my feebleness do for him? Great shepherd, add to your mercies this humble request. Grant me a heart to love you more truly as I ought. You know, when you, you're faced with God's strength, you can either be fearful or, you know, relax into it as um, as, as Spurgeon did. I, I found it encouraging. I hope you did too. I always love Spurgeon's writings and his thoughts, but Again, that's where in the word I am today, Isaiah chapter 40. Coming up next, well, we're gonna talk some new medications in fighting the coronavirus. So we'll be talking again with Zach Jenkins, who's a pharmacologist. He tweets at Farm D Hiker. Stay with us. This is Mornings with Carmen. Hey, 98.6. It's good to have you back again. Oh hey. Again, this is Mornings with Carmen. Paul filling in for Carmen today. And with us right now is uh, Zach Jenkins, who is a infectious disease pharmacist professor at Cedarville University. Backpacker just got back from some hiking, huh, Zach?
2: I did. I did. I spent some time up along the Appalachian Trail.
0: Ah, must have been beautiful. Must have been beautiful with fall and everything. Absolutely. Oh. Anyway, glad to have you back. Uh, we want to hang on to the fact that you are an infectious disease pharmacist. You know your things about that. And we've been, we've, it's been great having you as part of our lineup in the mornings over the last year and a half on and off dealing with issues around coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, and some of the medications out there. And a couple of weeks ago, saw something that hopefully is a good thing. Uh, Merck has a new antiviral treatment that is coming out. Okay, I'm going to try pronouncing it again. You' probably correctly. Manupir, uh, Manupiravir. Go ahead. Say what? What is it? What is it?
2: <laughs> um, Molnupiravir. It's easy for you to say.
0: <laughs> anyway, tell us about it. It, it. It's a hopeful sign in many respects.
2: So it's a it's what we would call a mutagenic ribonucleoside, and what its intent in doing, or I guess, when you're using it, what you're intending to do. Is slow down replication of the virus mm-hmm. so how it does that is it basically acts almost like you're throwing a wrench in the cogs of the machine so it's what it inserts itself in the process where the virus is um, replicating itself in your cell and it makes that whole process stop so that that's the intent behind behind its function and, and you know when we look at our other therapies with the virus so far, A lot of our focus has been on the inflammation itself, but, you know, the virus is still replicating. And so as that continues to exponentially spread, then you run into more issues there, as you can imagine. So this is actually saying, hey, let's slow down that replication. Um, Some things to kind of note about it, though, we haven't always had the best track record with antivirals in general. If you think about it, Tamiflu, a lot of people are familiar with. All it really does is it cuts down the length of the flu. What's interesting about this particular product, though, this smolnupiravir, what they're saying is that it can reduce hospitalization and death associated with COVID if you give it to mild to moderate patients who, have, who are at risk of progressing to severe disease before they hit the the door of a hospital, so mm-hmm. this would be something you could go to your uh, primary care physician, get it in their office, and you should be good to go. And it's oral, so you know you don't have to think about sitting in infusions an infusion center for like an hour, like like we're doing with our monoclonal um, antibodies right now.
0: Okay, that, so, that's so that's, like, that's one of the key things that jumped out at me was the fact that finally something in pill form that can be easily prescribed, and you know you can go home, to be in your own comfortable house, and take the medication
2: yeah exactly exactly and that that's one of the the best things to hope for in general with most most treatments and we just haven't had a lot of luck with that so far and the other thing to kind of consider is cost and we don't know what the cost of this would be if it ends up getting some kind of approval but right now to get an infusion of monoclonal antibody it's about twenty one hundred dollars to the patient potentially Mm. so that's a bit of a problem um the other thing that i'll mention too is you know we don't know the full details of this data yet. So Merck just submitted this data to the FDA for consideration. They have yet to publish most of it publicly. And there's some things we have to be kind of concerned about with that in the long run, one of which is when we've looked at other things in the same group, these mutagenic ribonucleosides, we have seen that sometimes, at least in animal models, they have actually caused uh, the development of cancer in really rare cases, but that's happened or um, potentially alt- alterations in developing children in pregnant mothers. Mm. So those are things we have to really be concerned about and why we need to see that kind of data. So we, we've had other things before that have those same kinds of issues. We, we commonly use medications today like that, um, but it's all about like how rare are those events versus how effective is this treatment. So that's a right. big thing we have to pay attention to.
0: I, I did hear uh, Pfizer is working on something similar that actually – it, it It's supposed to be an antiviral, but possibly something could be used preventatively. uh, So you don't get it. Is that something this might be able to do? Or is this, again, just for people who have COVID?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So I'll mention that the data that they've shared is speaking specifically about treatment. Mm -hmm. They are still studying the same product for prevention. So basically, could I take it just as like a prophylactic every day and it will keep me from getting an infection? They're looking at it for that. And then secondary prevention. And what that means is if you've been exposed to someone and might get COVID, would it be useful to use in that kind of situation? We don't have data on either of those two other topics right now, um, but they're investigating it.
0: Okay, I just had a listener text in because we're talking about this new Merck drug that hopefully, well, it's still going through the approval process, and hopefully it pans out. I had a listener call our text in saying, can you comment on ivermectin? Uh, I know that's been one of those controversial things. And okay, you're a pharmacist. You know the meds. Sure. First off, what is ivermectin? So
2: ivermectin is an antiparasitic medication we've used for a long period of time, um, actually for helminth infections, so parasitic worms specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the doses, though, and this is an important thing to underscore, that we have used to treat parasitic infections are sometimes hundreds to a thousand fold less than the doses that have actually been studied in a lab with ivermectin at, for, for slowing COVID down. Hmm. And and why that's a significant thing to pay attention to is we know that everything out there um, has some kind of toxic level, even water does, right? And so in, in the lab setting, yeah, it slowed it down, but we don't have clinical experience with this in humans, uh, at least in an appreciable way. And so what we've seen, and I've seen a few things myself, for example, recently, people are prescribing these, these doses that are orders of magnitude greater than what we've had experience with. Mm-hmm. And that's potentially a safety issue. I mean, you could cause uh, nerve damage, coma, seizures with really high doses of this. So this is something to kind of pay attention to. Now, as far as where the data is with ivermectin right now, um, the a lot of the data that you've heard about is not the strongest. When you actually look at the study designs, there's a lot of flaws in the designs of the studies themselves. But there are some major trials going on right now. There are about five major trials. Um, one of which I have heard the results aren't looking positive so far. The others I haven't heard a lot about um, what those results are looking like in the long run. Um, but when you look at the aggregate of data at the moment, especially after they got rid of this study where people kind of made up data as we, as we later found out. Mm. It's kind of questionable as to whether we'll see things uh, be effective or not.:
0: All right, we're talking with Zach Jenkins, an infectious disease pharmacist. He's also a professor at Cedarville University. And when we come back, we're going to look at booster shots for uh, COVID-19. Uh, there's a lot of talk about that. We're going to get into what some of the boosters are available, what ma- we'll talk about boosters in just a few minutes here on mornings with Carmen. <laughs> And this again is Mornings with Carmen. Thank you for listening. I'm Paul filling in today. Uh, Carmen is still traveling back from a speaking engagement this past weekend. Hey, don't forget, Carmen will be traveling again this coming weekend. She's going to be in Hartford, Connecticut, and on Saturday is going to be holding a uh, meet-and-greet. And And if you're in the Hartford, Connecticut area and want to get in on that, just text the word MEET to 877-933-2484. Back to our talk with Zach Jenkins, who is... Been joining us for several months now, and uh, keeping us uh, up to date on medications and the fight against COVID. And so, Zach, we've—I've had my uh, vaccination back in. I think it was late March. I finished in April, and people are talking about you know after a while, whether you have the natural immunity or or the one that comes from getting the vaccination it weakens after a while so there's the talk about boosters right now where are we at on the whole booster discussion
2: yeah boosters are a really nuanced subject and there's there's a couple angles that i think we need to kind of cover from it so the first of which is you know where are we at with boosters in general for the same products so if you had for example pfizer can you get a a booster out there right now for for that particular vaccine and so the fda did provide an emergency use authorization for that um, if if you have Pfizer specifically, but there was a bit of a dissent because there was some pressure where people were trying to push to get this booster available for all. But When you look at the data, it seems to be the most beneficial in people with um, significant complications who are under the age of 65. So let's say they have really bad history of like heart disease or COPD and that kind of thing that puts them at a higher risk or especially in people over the age of 65. So that's really what they approved it for. When we look at the other data, though, the other big question is, okay, well, can you mix and match vaccines? Because that's been something that I've even been skeptical about since the very beginning. The UK did this, and I, I was very concerned about that approach originally. But we finally have a very large study that was just published last week that speaks specifically to it. So what they did is they looked at different groups of people, people that received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, Moderna and Pfizer, and then they said, okay, well, we're going to look at each of those three groups and then give a different booster to members of those groups. So people that had Johnson & Johnson may have had a Moderna booster. They could have had a, another Johnson & Johnson booster or a Pfizer booster, for example. And the same was true for all those other groups. So as they looked at the data then, they found that um, there was a benefit overall when when they looked at all groups and providing a booster as far as raising the level of neutralizing antibodies, which are the antibodies that really kind of bind the virus as it's circulating. Um, so so what ends up happening in those cases is they saw they saw these uh, things increase. But the greatest increase was in the, the individuals who had a Johnson and Johnson vaccine and then received one of the other two mRNA vaccines, mm, which is a different kind of vaccine to Johnson and Johnson.
0: So mixing and matching, there may be some benefit.
2: Yeah, well, and that, that, that's at least the benefit part, but then the, the safety issues is there too, okay. right? Yeah. So they looked at safety as well, and there were only two cases of events that were reported when they looked at data out for about 30 days following the use of a booster, um, and both of those weren't found to be very attributable to the vaccine, one of which was kidney a kidney issue from someone who fell down the stairs, basically, and mm, uh, yeah. that, that wasn't seen to be very significant, obviously, um, but safety looks okay. Now, the question is, what does this mean? Right. Right. So the FDA hasn't really made a decision on this yet, and, and they can't recommend mixing vaccines when there's not been anyone submitting a request for an emergency use authorization. So that's the first thing to consider. Mm. Um, CDC has got to look at the data as well. Um, the vaccine advisory group has to look at the data. That's that's one whole aspect. But we also don't know what the best regimen is. Right. So, would it be better to you know get a Pfizer booster if you had a j and j if you're in one of those high risk groups? Mm -hmm. Would it be better to stay with the same vaccine? I mean, those are some of the big things they're going to have to parse out as they discuss this data, which make it sort of difficult for us figuring this kind of thing out ourselves.
0: Okay, real quickly, we have like a minute Um, to (laughs) boost or not to boost. That is the question. If somebody who's had a case of covid and then they also get the vaccine, there's question, is it worth bothering them to get a booster at this point? Because they seem to have a higher level of of uh, resistance.
2: So, natural immunity has a, a role to play, without a doubt, and, and that's something I think that needs to be part of these discussions. But when we look at the data itself, the people who've had um, some kind of natural infection and they've received a single shot of a vaccine seem to actually have a better immune response than people who've had both shots of a vaccine. If it's a, if it's a two dose regimen, so they've even looked at three, you know, full regimen plus natural infection, and they're supposedly like you know super immune when you mm. talk about it. But I, I would say, if you've been actually infected before, a single dose is more than enough.
0: Mm, okay. Well, Zach, we I wanted to get into more stuff, including the fact, looking at your your Twitter page, that uh, you're a uh, you're a coffee addict. Isn't that called self medicating?
2: Uh, I, I think so. Okay, and plus Bad a addiction, right?
0: And and plus a uh, a dad joke uh, master. You you, you oh, do nice. know, uh, what how to define a good dad joke, right?
2: How do you define a good dad? Well, the
0: first has to be a parent and fully grown. Okay. Think about it. Anyway, oh, thanks yes. a, lot, thanks oh, a yes. lot, Zach. We'll <laughs> hope to catch up with you again sometime.
2: All right. I hope you have a good day.
0: This is Mornings with Carmen. this morning 's with Carmen a few weeks back, I remember Carmen talking with Peter Kapsner during one of their Thursday visits about this guy in Florida who captured a six foot long alligator using a one of those big plastic uh, garbage cans that you see out on the curb. It was quite a maneuver it was caught on video, and maybe you 've seen that on on YouTube or or such Well. Uh, Abdul Jean Malik, or he goes by Eugene Bazi, uh, he's at it again. Um, there's a uh, there's another video of him. I, I guess a large snake got into his house, and he the video shows him carrying the snake out, wrapped in some cloth or whatever, but carrying it out of the house to get. I mean, <laughs> All I know is Discovery Channel needs to hunt down this guy. You know, he could be the next Steve Irwin or something. Hey, stay with us. Uh, We'll be talking politics and such in just a few minutes. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College joining us in just a few moments here on Faith Radio. This might be hard for you to hear, but chances are your teen will drink alcohol sometime during their high school years. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Teens are curious, they experiment, they make immature and impetuous choices. So instead of overreacting and making things worse than they already are, take a gentle approach. A gentle word always turns away an overreaction. Before jumping all over their case, figure out what's motivating your teen to drink sit down and ask questions. Understanding what's behind this behavior will ensure that your approach is correct and the consequences are appropriate. Don't make it a federal offense, but be sure to address it the right way.
2: Do you feel like you've come to the end of your rope? Learn how to get your team back on track
1: with one of Mark Gregston's parenting seminars. For a list of upcoming events, go to parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: This is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Paul Pro filling in for Carmen. Today, she'll be back tomorrow. Well, last week, the Supreme Court, actually, I say the Biden administration and its Blue Ribbon Commission on reforming the Supreme Court sent out a preliminary report. And when it comes to talking SCOTUS, Supreme Court, we love talking with one of our regular guests about it, Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College, the creator of the whole concept of Christmas, or rather, SCOTUSmas.
1: Uh, ha- happy to be here and, and ha- happy to, to, to take that mantle on. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you even, okay, we won't get into it now, but you do have a SCOTUSmas poem, uh, kind of, It was the Night Before Scotus Anyway, we, we won't go there right now, but we talk about that time as the end of the uh, session when all the major rulings are, are coming out. Uh, the most recent session of the Supreme Court got underway just a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, as I mentioned, the uh, Blue Ribbon Commission appointed by... Joseph Biden came out with a preliminary report about potential reforms. Now, why is there a call to reform the Supreme Court in the first place?
1: A lot of it comes from the rancor over the last uh, three appointees to the Supreme Court that were made by President Trump. And on the left, the perception being that two or all three of them were illegitimate and that therefore the decisions being made are going to be illegitimate. So there's been uh, a push on that side to expand the court and make there be more justices more in line with with uh, what what they think is the current reality. The other is, although this hasn't been as big, how many uh, octogenarians you have on the court. <laughs> yeah. the people are staying on the court for a very long time. And the question is, should there be a Retirement, uh, or 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 at least a term limit. I know in the state I live in, Michigan, you're not allowed to run for reelection. I believe after the age of seventy, if you're on the Supreme Court. So uh, that that's that's been the other is 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 are they able? Is the fact that uh, and one concrete thing is the court has been taking fewer and fewer cases over the last decade or so, mm. and people are wondering if that could be to age. So so one is a little less political. The other is pretty hyper political for. For why.
0: Okay. Now with the, again, preliminary report, this isn't the final report that this Blue Ribbon Commission will be uh, issuing, but what jumped out at you? What do you think most of our listeners might uh, be interested in hearing about?
1: I think that one, it's just preliminary. So there's going to be a final report, although I think we get a good idea what's going to be in there. First, I'd say that the commission was split on the question of pack uh, of adding, uh, justices to the Supreme Court. None of them disagreed that the Congress and the President have the power to expand the court, because that was pretty clear. The Constitution doesn't set the number of Supreme Court justices, that's set by law. But they were split on whether it was a good idea which means that I don't think you're going to get a lot of juice or support out of expanding the court from this commission. And that's already why I think many progressives are crying foul about it. The thing they pushed a little harder was the term limits issue, and that had greater support. But the problem for it is— Whereas you can add to the Supreme Court by by law, you can expand or contract it just by passing a simple law, you would need a constitutional amendment to give term limits because the Constitution itself says that Supreme Court and other uh, justices or other uh, federal judges serve for good behavior is what it's called, which really <laughs> just means is, you know, uh, not, not, you know, they 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 eat with the right fork, but that they're they're uh, they, 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 they're not convict, they're not impeached and convicted of high crimes and misdemeanors. So, I, I, I've thought this a while about this commission. I, I just don't see much big change coming out of it. At best, it could be a more educational opportunity uh, for for people to think more about the court. That said, we'll see if, if, especially the the left tries to push something out of this once the final draft comes.
0: Now, your personal opinion though on the the idea of term limits what are your what are your thoughts personally about that
1: i I would lean still against it even though I think it's it's more reasonable than having a um uh, a a question of the uh, uh, of packing the number of justices having more i I think that there are mechanisms that can still and have been used if someone's been on the court too long to get them to retire or step down. Uh, I still think that the way the court is set up. If you have a good justice who's of sound mind, uh, it's not a bad thing to still have them on the court, even if it's only for a few more years. So I I don't see the process as fundamentally uh, broken. I think that the the, the uh, alternative would be risking more because I think uh, maintaining an independent judiciary and maintaining one that keeps the justices as long as they're uh, 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 really working and doing well, I think is, is a good idea. And it's just human beings are so different. Someone mm-hmm. may not be of sound mind and body at 70. Some may be so into their 80s. Uh, And so I I just think that that's a little too hard to pigeonhole. And I think there's other mechanisms that have been used in the past when justices have just not been able to do the work.
0: All right. Well, we're talking with Adam Carrington. And since we're on the topic of the Supreme Court, there was an interesting little uh, kerfluffle or clash between a couple of the Supreme Court justices as they were hearing the Boston bomber case. Give us give us the background on that.
1: Yes, and it's funny because it was about the time Kavanaugh—between Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Kagan, Kavanaugh had been doing it remotely, doing the oral arguments, because he had had a mild case of, of COVID. And so this was kind of a welcome back. And it, it really—the uh, the debate in the case was about, you know, as you said, one of the Boston bombers who was trying to not get his conviction overturned but get his death penalty sentence Overturned and turned to life in prison because the claim was that there were some mitigating factors about uh, how he had maybe been led by his brother and that his brother was the real instigator that should have been put into court and that may have swayed the jury to to, to not give the death penalty, just give in life in prison. So I say that background, um, Justice Kagan very much seemed in favor of this new trial and very much in favor of getting rid of the death penalty sentence and gave a number of hypotheticals, which Kavanaugh then kind of um, uh, uh, really made some disparaging remarks about without saying it was about hers and Kagan didn't take kindly to it and broke Supreme Court precedent by jumping in to defend herself in the middle of Kavanaugh's mm. questions. And I, I think some of this is just personal. I think I think Kavanaugh was really going hard after that opinion. At the same time, it could be a precursor with so many uh, 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 rancorous decisions coming up. We've talked before about gun rights and abortion. It could be a preview that there's some— uh, more rancor than normal in the court. The court is probably the healthiest functioning of the branches in the sense of they get along better than I think any other branch. Uh, at the same time, I think this could be showing some of that. And some of it is just it's a death penalty case and emotions run high when that happens. But it could also be tea leaves for how 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 bitter this uh, this session could be given future cases.
0: Mm. Well, again, we're talking with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale Colleges uh, College. When we come back, okay, here we are, a few weeks away from election day. Although it's an off-year election, but there is a very important race that is getting a lot of attention out east. We'll talk about that, and actually, a call by some Republicans: "Hey, until things are improved, don't vote." Uh, Well, we'll get to that in just a little bit here on Mornings with Carmen. with Carmen. Good morning. I'm Paul Perot, filling in for Carmen today. She'll be back in tomorrow, traveling back from a speaking engagement out out in California. Talking right now with Adam Carrington of Hillsdale College and, okay, Next year at this time, I'm sure we are going to, our minds are just going to be going kerplooey with uh, political ads and uh, just all the rancor because there'll be the midterm elections. But there are elections happening this year. I mean, it's an, it's an annual thing, Adam. And although there's not a lot of big national or even statewide races in many states, there is in Virginia.
1: Yes, uh, and actually New Jersey, but oh, okay. people are really watching Virginia more. Yeah, These, these have what are called the off-off year elections, <laughs> so the year after a presidential election, and uh, Virginia is being watched especially because the question is going to be uh, how much of a bellwether could it be seen for the midterms and for how President Biden is doing once you actually put the Democratic Party on the ballot for real voters to see, and also with the Virginia race, just to keep in mind, you have Terry McAuliffe, who was uh, governor before and is running again, not as an incumbent. You can't run for re-election in Virginia, but you can wait a term and come back. And then the, the Republican is part of, of of the Virginia GOP that has gone increasingly from a kind of. Uh, a, a typical establishment Republican Party to a very uh, a national nationalist, uh, Trump-friendly one. And so the question is going to be, how is that going to play in Virginia? And to some degree, both campaigns have been pretty riddled by uh, kerfuffles and scandals. Uh, at the same time they're going to be a pretty good i think litmus test for at least where where we might be going into the future if if it 's pretty close that 's not good for Democrats because uh, Virginia is increasingly blue uh, at the same time Republicans might see it as a missed opportunity because of the way their candidate has conducted himself in certain situations so uh, but still, I think people are going to be looking at it as is does it show the national tea leaves for next year and then for twenty twenty four
0: in, in that regard, I mean, I did look at the latest polling. Well, they did it yesterday, and they're getting close. McCullough still has an edge overall. If you fact, you know, if you uh, average out things, but the, the Trafalgar did one uh, a, a poll, and it was dead even.
1: Yeah, I, a, 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 a even a close race. Would be bad for Democrats if it's under five points. That's not good for the Democratic Party, given the state of Virginia and the composition of their party. Virginia is very highly educated compared to the rest of the country, very friendly to Democrats. If if Republicans win, that's uh, that that should be a five alarm bell five, you know, for 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 the Democratic Party. So. Definitely. So, one thing you need to have expectations at a certain level that are commensurate with the state, uh, but are commensurate. But uh, uh, close is bad for Democrats. A Republican win is is pretty catastrophic in terms next year. So that's I think what to watch for if you're looking for the bigger picture as opposed to just Virginia itself.
0: Well, usually in the off-year election, the party that's out of power, especially when it comes to the presidency, usually makes gains, right? That's kind of the standard understanding of things, right?
1: Yes. And and that's, I think, uh, where, where we're trending, especially for 2022. The the difficulty with Virginia, it used to be Virginia and New Jersey were good together because New Jersey tended to be more Democrat and and, and Virginia more Republican. But that's harder just because Virginia, with northern Virginia being sort of southern D.C. now, it's so much more Democrat that I think that you can't just say if the Democrats win, they're doing well in Virginia anymore. Uh, They really need to win comfortably, not blowout, but comfortably as a way of – Figuring out what that's what's the case. I guess the other thing to look at is how does the down ballot races go? Does mm-hmm. do, how well do Republicans do in their in their legislative branch? And there's where the Republicans are more competitive. So if Republicans have a big have a majority after this is all over, that's another mm-hmm. uh, a sign that things aren't going well for Democrats.
0: Okay. Well, getting back to next year's midterms, there. Yeah. OK, Trump uh, basically made a call because he, he's still arguing the case that he unfairly lost the election. And so he's saying, you know, until election uh, procedures are reformed, he's saying Republicans shouldn't vote, which would kind of go against the idea, hey, if, if that's going to be the call, how are Republicans supposed to get, you know, get that boost in the midterms? But uh, that, that in itself, I mean, what are your thoughts when you heard that?
1: I, I think that's uh, very counterproductive if your goal is to build a party and not just yourself. And I think that uh, if anything, uh, someone should be making the appeal to, to to Mr. Trump that that his legacy will be enhanced by a stronger Republican Party because it will be seen as something he built, as opposed to the particulars of relitigating 2020. In fact, what I think he should be doing is encouraging people to to vote because of the election reforms that were passed in his name and 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 because of his concerns I think if if you're thinking just as a political strategist you say they, that's good and we need more of it rather than saying, don't actually try to basically still change the results of the 2020 election, which just, just isn't going to happen at this point. I just don't think it's a good strategy. And I think it really, comments like this really did, I think, hurt them in the Georgia runoff, right. where I think they were going to be very competitive. And, and I'm not saying that's the only factor, but uh, it ha- I think it was a contributing factor to two close Senate races going for the Democrats. So uh, I, 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 I'm not saying that Um, you know, that they're going to that President Trump is ever going to give up his 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 claims about 2020. But uh, if he's going to do that, I think there were way more judicious ways of doing it that would actually be helpful to him. But I I just I just think he's, he's he's not operating in that mode right now.
0: All right. We just have a about a minute or so left. And I want you to quickly comment because last week, I think it was Jonah Goldberg over at the, the dispatch put out, you know, there should be a forming of a new conservative party. Now, he got some people supporting him. Uh, fellow dispatcher, David French, he had I, I forgot who it was over at uh, the National Review um basically saying, no, that would be problematic. But the idea of reforming a new conservative movement more on the neoconservative side, instead of what's become the more nationalistic trend you're seeing within the Republican Party. What was your thought when you heard about that? I
1: think that uh, just you've got to ask, are the voters there? And it just doesn't seem like the voters are there for it. Uh, I think that really what that section of the Republican Party, which is not insignificant, but could not be its own competitive party or even, uh, I think, a, a swinger of, of elections, to be honest, very much. They need to be really seeing who can they make common cause with, either within the party or or in in some fashion, uh, uh, they, they need to be coalition building, not building their own side, and that's going to be, I think, frustratingly for them a, a longer work, but also work that I, I think that, that that could be done. But I don't think it's trying to form your own party on that basis. I, I think that you're, you just don't have the voters for that, and you need to understand yourself as a section of the of a of the conservative movement. What do you do to make yourself a? relevant conception
0: again. Hmm. All right, Adam. Well, thank you again for joining us. Since you're a teacher at Hillsdale, have you had fall break yet or is that coming up?
1: That's this week. We'll have a two-day fall break at the end of the week, but I'm actually using it to go teach at another school for for a week, a (laughs) one-week session. So uh, I just just decided that I guess rest wasn't a good thing. Oh, there you go.
0: So, well, again, thank you for joining us, Adam. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Uh, Enjoy talking with you every other week here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All wrapping up the first hour of Mornings with Carmen, and today, a couple of important things to remember. It is uh, National Chocolate Cupcake Day, which I like, and also National No Beard Day. Uh, not going there. I've had this beard now for 32 years. It's staying. It, it's staying. If anything, I'll let it grow longer in November. But anyway, we'll be back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio.